I'm so glad you're agreeable because we're on to a topic I really want to talk about this morning. Do you know the line, I would do anything for you? Anything. I'll do anything for you. Just, just name it. If you're a child in elementary school, that means, you know, I'll give you my peanut butter sandwich for your tofu mash. Anything. On the ball field, I'll take the punch that was coming to you. In the classroom, you know, when we pull the prank on the teacher, I'll, I'll, I'll stand in line and I'll take your punishment. I'll do anything for you. In seventh grade, the prank was on the principal's desk. If you go into those old metal desks, those heavy drawers, and you go all the way to the back and release those roller hinges, something happens when the principal pulls on the front of the desk. It's a, it's a little heavy there. And when we did that and the drawer went all over the classroom, he just burst out of his chair, the veins bulging on his neck. Who did this? I demand to know who did it. You will clean it up now. And he marched out of the classroom. And right about then, that little theory goes out the window. I'll do anything for you? Oh, oh no. No, no, no. You can take the punishment for that. Right? So we know limits. I'll do anything for you. When we get a little older and life gets a little more complicated and serious, some of you know that feeling. I would step in and take the diagnosis for you. I would take the treatment for you. I would take the accident for you. I would take the disaster in your place. I would do anything for you. In the Christian tradition, there is a name for what happens to Jesus on the cross between Friday night and Sunday morning. Right in the middle of what's called Holy Saturday is called God's descent into hell. God would do anything for us. On that Saturday, after the crucifixion has happened and people are hid up in their homes making sense of what they've witnessed and the earth is silent and, and there's no movement anywhere, Holy Saturday... When God descends to hell, he would do anything for us. I hope this next Easter season we will spend a weekend on just that idea, Holy Saturday, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. This morning I want to read together the passage describing what happens to Jesus on the cross. We'll read from the Gospel of Luke this morning. Now because it's, several, it's a long passage and we're not used to reading such lengthy passages together, I invite you to use a Bible rather than just look off of the screen here is Jesus on the cross Friday night, just before the sun sets. Luke 23, chapter 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes and by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of the God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. In these final hours of the life of Jesus, we see at the foot of the cross a theme being played out, which we've been discussing for about four weeks now, identity theft. In this scene, identity challenged, maybe even smarter to say agenda challenged for the Jesus kingdom, but it's been happening since the courtroom and in the city streets where the the slapping and the spitting took place and on the path all the way to the hill of Golgotha. But specifically in the text we read right there, look at what the people are saying and and how many of the people participate in the conversation and the accusations. They come from every side. Verse 35, the people stood watching and sneered at him. And the rulers, if he's chosen, let him save himself. In verse 36, the soldiers mock him. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. In verse 39, even one of the criminals hanging next to him pipes up and says, save yourself and me too while you're at it. From every side, Jesus is being challenged. Who are you? Are you who you say you are? All the scenes leading up to the cross, and really what they mean at the end here, as darkness comes and the sun stops shining, if you are God, if you were sent by God, if you have any little bit of godly power in you, do something about this mess. Why would you just hang there? Get a sword, grab some soldiers, take care of this, clean up the mess. That's what God would do. That's what God would do, fix the mess. Well, who created the mess? We've been talking about this for four weeks. One thing that I have said I believe is a non-negotiable when we're talking about God and who God is, not just an attribute, not just a character trait, but God's essence, who God is at God's being is agape love. Total, other-centered, self-sacrificing, agape love, which is beyond the kind of love we know anything about here today. That's a non-negotiable of who God is. And because God is that kind of a person, then God can't coerce you or I to behave or act or respond a certain way. Humans have freedom. So God plus humans now equal the future. God is liable to our decisions. And God opens God's self up into the future with you and I, with our free choice. What the Bible makes so clear, what salvation history makes clear, what actually our physical history here on earth is very clear about is that creatures make poor choices. That creatures make a mess. That when creatures are given the opportunity to choose whatever we want, we'll probably make a mess out of something. So here stands a crowd quite ignorant at the base of the cross. Jesus, do something about it. If you're God, take care of the mess that we created. Now, it's easier for us to skip over this scene, and we do it quite gracefully, Adventist Christians. We move to Sunday. 
Like the preacher says, Friday's here, but Sunday's a coming. Let's just go to Sunday. Sunday is where the hope is, for sure. Just would like to pause with you this morning at the foot of the cross and ask the question, but what is really happening here? What is God saying at the cross? What is Jesus doing at the cross? Now, we're quite clear that Jesus saves. That Jesus saves, we all know, and we teach our children. But how Jesus does it is a little more confusing. There's at least one theology professor who begins his classes this way. Uh, Professor John Sanders takes the, the green freshman theology majors and says to them, tell me what the gospel is. And they usually recite something like, God created humans, humans sinned and we're guilty of that and we're not capable of fixing it so God sent Jesus to save us and now we're forgiven and we get to go to heaven and the professor plays Socrates and it doesn't take more than two or three questions oh you're forgiven so it doesn't matter what you do now the students say no 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 it matters what you do well but if God if Jesus came and he keeps questioning and poking him before you're done you realize well maybe the gospel isn't that simple that Jesus saves okay but how Jesus does it is more confusing for us. Just a few years after the scene at the cross, the Apostle Paul tries a few words and actually spends most of his writing, writings trying to understand what happened at the cross. Here's just one example, though, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's commentary on the cross. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a penalty theory of atonement or how God makes relationships good again. And church leaders have spent about 1,800 years with commentary and conversation trying to understand exactly what is happening at the cross when Jesus hangs and dies. And so we work on metaphors from Scripture and we pull ideas and we formulate theories. And over the centuries, we've had our theories in Christianity, although no one official theory of atonement. There was never any one church council called that says, this is what you will now say happened at the cross. But we have had ransom theories, satisfaction theories, substitution theories, Christus Victor theories. We've had penalty theories, the moral influence theory. All have had their day. All have been nuanced. And some laid on top of each other with just a little different way of expressing what happened at the cross. One thing I would like to say for certain this morning, it matters what we think happened at the cross. It matters how we explain it to people because when we describe what's happening at the cross, we're describing God. It is a God conversation. We're talking about God's very character. So it matters what we think happened there and how we portray God when we talk about the cross. A lot of these theories move evil word more a theory of explaining evil. Some move manward or humanward, trying to explain humans. And some move Godward. And I'd like us to do that, move Godward in our conversation of what happened at the cross. How do you explain it? I suggest that, um, like I say, it matters how we explain it. It's probably better that we say less and what we say is accurate than say more and what we say is inaccurate. Because we're now describing God to people. We're now giving God a face and a character and an identity and a way of moving through the world. And if we're not really sure and if we're inaccurate, it's better that we just say less 
and say it accurate, which is why so many people just want to sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, this I know. Maybe it's better we say less and be accurate. How I wish we could be more careful, and I'm just going to talk about Adventist Christianity this morning. How I wish we could be very careful when we blurt out with confidence, whether it's in a Sabbath school quarterly or in the review or in a volume of Adventist theology, when we say things like, God demands a blood sacrifice. God requires a penalty be paid. God is a just judge. A judge must condemn and convict over sin. A judge can't let sin go unanswered. Oh, I wish we'd be very careful when we start making statements about what a righteous judge must must do and the blood that God requires on our behalf. How much blood then? The question begs, how much is enough? How much should Jesus have to suffer? Which is why it was a challenge for Mel Gibson with his movie, The Passion of the Christ. If you shoot four or five, six hours, what do you need to edit it down to? It was a very long movie. If you, I, I chose not to see it. How much blood is enough? What is it we're saying about God when we declare these statements? And in fact, that one in particular, Adventists haven't said a whole lot about violence and God at the cross. We should be very careful if God is total agape, self-sacrificing, other-centered love. We should be careful how we explain what happened at the cross. We should also be careful to keep Jesus and God really on the same mission. And sometimes we divide these in two. We forget that they are on the same mission. They are about the same thing. There isn't a hierarchy in the Godhead. We continue to say these four weeks, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus' words. There there isn't a division. Therefore, it's a very challenging thing to to think that God the Father could punish God the Son somehow. That we, We should be careful how we describe what happens because these two are one of in three. More so, however, we should be careful that however we describe what God is doing at the cross, that it's consistent with what we've seen Jesus do as he moves around Palestine. When Jesus finds people in trouble, what do you see? When Jesus catches the woman in adultery, what do you see? When Jesus catches Zacchaeus and the other tax collectors, do you see him demanding a blood sacrifice? When he moves over to the temple scribes who've been abusing the temple law, And marginalizing people. Do you see him demanding some kind of substitution or some kind of blood sacrifice, some penalty? What do you see when you see Jesus move? And that gives us a clue of probably what God's doing at the cross. We ought to be careful that they're consistent. If Jesus is really representing God, then when we watch Jesus, we get a clue of what God is doing at the cross. We should be careful to remember that this isn't so much about heaven's minimum entrance requirement. What gets me into heaven? What gets you into heaven? What makes us arrive? Because there is so much more at stake in the conversation of the cross. If heaven were never promised, what's happening at the cross is so significant. It isn't about uh, getting us into heaven. At the cross... Everything that is sin and evil, everything that is against God and opposite to God and destroying the world and chaos, all of that Jesus takes on himself as he hangs there. Voluntarily, self-imposed destruction of everything that could possibly be made an avenue for sin. That's what happens at the cross. 
That is about so much more than making sure I get into heaven, isn't it? Evil is stopped at the cross. That's grander than whether I get into heaven. God will take care of that. It's a a conversation that's more than about heaven's minimum entrance requirement. One definition that I like of atonement, what happens at the cross and how Jesus makes relationships right again, brings harmony. One definition I like is that a new deed begins between God and humans, which transforms all that has happened. doesn't wipe it out, but it transforms it into something new. So when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, we do see a self-sacrificing, other-centered, agape kind of love working. Fight like a man, they say to Jesus. Don't let them slap you, Jesus. Don't let them spit on you. Don't let them scourge your sin. Jesus, stand up and do something. And with every hit and every slap and with the wine and vinegar thrown in his clothes torn, every strike against Jesus, can you see Jesus absorbs that as a strike of evil he takes out of the world. At the cross, evil meets its match. This is the end of you. That's what happens at the cross. Sometimes, I believe, we get a little confused and we, and we think that the transactions that God has arranged and whatever we believe needs to happen there at the cross, that somehow the devil is very much involved That God perhaps would be beholden to the devil. That somehow the requirements and the penalties and whatever transactions need to occur. That something has happened between God and the devil and the onlooking universe. And God is now somehow beholding to the devil. And we ought to be careful of theologies that somehow give the devil more credit than the devil deserves. This is God's world. I met a little devil once. I was very sad he was characterized that way, a nine-year-old boy. And he was a, everyone knew he was a challenge. On this particular night, vacation Bible school was pretty simple. You move from the cookie station up to the Bible story room, and he didn't want to go. With the moral of the story is, please do the Bible before you do cookies, by the way. So his unit moved on, and here he stands, and he's stomping his feet, and the teenage counselors don't know what to do. And I was called, and I got down on my knees, looked him eye to eye, and said, what's the problem? And he told me, I'm not going anywhere. I want my cookies. I said, well, you already had your cookies. Well, I want more. Well, I'll tell you what. All you got to do is go to that room and that room, and then you'll be done, and you're almost finished. It's about time to go. I'm not going anywhere. I want my cookies. I happen to have some cookies in my pocket. Every pastor carries cookies in their pocket. So I pull out these three little crumbled up wafers, looked at the little devil in the eye and said, I tell you what, let me make a deal with you. You go to your Bible room, you go to the activity room, you come over to that big church and I'll wait for you at the door. And when I see you at the door, I'm going to give you your cookies. These are your cookies. And when the program's over, you're going to get them. He says to me, I don't do deals. Give me my cookies. Do you want to know how the story ended? I wasn't going to tell you, but I said to him, Oh, yes, you do. You do deals. (laughs) Go. (laughs) 
It was done. (laughs) Sometimes I think we think that at the cross, somehow God and the devil are doing a deal together, that somehow the devil is invested in what's gone wrong in the world, and God owes an explanation to the devil, or somehow the penalty system, the penal system involved, is some way to satisfy the devil. And I just want to say clearly, watch out for theologies that give the devil too much position in the conversation. This is God's world. This is not the devil's conversation, how God solves and recreates harmony between God and creation. That is none of the devil's business. He's not in a bargaining position. What happens in the cross, at the cross, is up to God. God is not doing deals with the devil. While he is at the cross, however, he does do business with evil. And most importantly, he does business with you and I. What happens at the cross is relational, friends. It's a relationship conversation, first and foremost at the cross. It's described as a descent into hell, and when I look at the cross, among many other realities, the one thing I see very clearly is a God who stands in full consequence of the mess we've made. When I look at the cross... I could see a God who says, here, creation, have your free choice, have your will, do what you'd like, and I'll wash my hands of you. But instead, I see a God who watches the mess creation makes and then crawls up on the cross and takes responsibility for it. That is the most powerful image I have of the cross. Never were we promised at creation, if you make the wrong decision, you're on your own. Never were we promised, if you make the wrong decision, I'll be gone. I'll step in for you, any of those things. Who would have known that when humans make the mess, the God of the universe would crawl up on a cross and say, let me be responsible with you. What an amazing, amazing activity at the cross. It isn't God just rescuing us. It's God being liable for us. It's God being accountable for us. It's God sharing in everything we've done. And the text we've read together says it this way. Verse 34 of Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They know, the people listening who are writing the text, they understand in every good martyr story, in every good Jewish martyr story, there's a plot line that's supposed to unfold. The person being martyred, the person being tortured, at some point in the story, all they do is call down the powers of heaven. All they have to do at the right time is call God to come and unleash God's wrath, and the persecutors will be gone, and the martyr is the hero. And here sits Jesus on the cross, the story upside down once again, saying, Instead of God, come and get them. Father, forgive them. It is supra-rational. It is mercy-laden. It is, yes, others-centered, total self-sacrificing, agape love. Maybe this is why Ellen White always calls us back to the gospel stories. Try as we might with our theories In many places, Ellen White says it, and I'll just read from Desire of Ages this morning, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. 
As thus we dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be last at last saved, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. So her plea is sit with the gospel story. Read it again and again. Let it sink in. Imagine the scenes. Soak it up. Watch what happens. Watch, ultimately, the principle of love, the power of God, rules in this story. That is how evil is taken out, by the principle of love. And for me, if I had to choose a metaphor, rather than God at judges at the cross, I see God as parent, God as heavenly parent, standing with children, taking responsibility for the chaos in creation. At the cross is God the parent in a category, all God's own. I have listened with interest this week to the story of the, this 10-year-old who they believe is responsible for the Santa Clarita fire from two weeks ago. Maybe you've listened on the news. 69 square acres, 21 homes damaged, $7 million of firefighting expenses, and they believe this one fire is started by a 10-year-old boy who's playing with matches. A 10-year-old boy who has no clue what matches can do. And it seems if the justice system, if the criminal system has its way, perhaps his parents will be held accountable for what he's done. That is what the legal system does. It finds fault. It assigns blame. It dishes out a penalty or a punishment. He is just one little child standing with a book of matches. Maybe a disobedient child. Maybe he'd been told, like I was told, like you were told, don't play with matches. And he did it anyway. Maybe he's an ignorant child like you and I were. We have no idea that 70, 80, 90 mile an hour Santa Ana winds can come through his canyon and cause the destruction that he unleashed. He's just a little child. He doesn't know what he's capable of doing, how he can destroy in the world. We are children, too, standing with a book of matches, sometimes disobedient, sometimes ignorant, from the Garden of Eden to today. We don't even know how much destruction we can do. We aren't even aware of the chaos we can cause with our poor choices. Just little children in the world. But what I see is a heavenly parent who takes little children like this by the hand and first says, please let me lead you out of the fire. Please let me put your feet on safe ground. Please let me assure you, this fire won't consume you. You're not going to be destroyed by this fire. You are safe with me, child. And, And this parent moves us out of the way of total destruction, and then above anything we could ever imagine, the heavenly parent turns around and walks right back into the fire with the whole world watching and stands and takes the consequence of what we have unleashed. I would do anything for you, 
Pastor Dustin said it last week on the cross, God screaming out, I love you. Yes, I would go to hell and back my child. That's how much you matter to me. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice, you became nothing, poured out to death many times, I've wondered at your gift of life, I'm in that place once again, and I'm in that place once again. Once again I look upon the cross where you died I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside Once again I thank you Once again I pour out my life Now you Exalted to the highest place, King of the heavens. But one day I'll bow, but for now, I marvel at your saving grace. I'm full of praise once again. I'm full of praise once again. And once again, cross where you died I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside once again I thank you once again I pour out my life thank you for the cross thank you for Thank you for the cross, my friend. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend. Sing that with me. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend. upon the cross where you died I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside once again I thank you once again I pour out my God of the cross, to the Jesus of the cross, to the spirit of the cross, be glory and power and honor forever and ever. And may the church say, Amen.